0: Hello and welcome back to the We Need Therapy podcast. On this week's episode, we are joined by another guest.
1: And we explore some serious themes of addiction, drug abuse, and recovery.
0: This episode may not be suitable for everyone. Please use your discretion. All right. So,
1: this is the first time you're meeting the family. Yeah, it is actually. I've worried, I've wondered about your mum and dad for years, but I've never met them.
0: Yeah, that's so weird. I guess because you've only ever known me. N- with me not living at home
1: yes although you keep moving back in with your parents <laughs> but i just never meet
0: them because it's, it's all the way out in, in canning vale yeah and you don't drive more than 10 minutes away from no, your house never no well i have brought a person in my family onto the show today
1: perfect i'm very excited
0: we're going to mm. refer him as jj just to protect his privacy welcome to the show jj
2: thank you thank you great
0: to be on so this is going to be a bit of a deep episode
1: Yes. I uh yeah, absolutely I agree.
0: <laughs> Does it look like you're looking at twins?
1: Uh no. You guys look very different.
0: Yeah, I, I think we do. Yeah, yeah, I would agree to that. Yeah. And
1: you're also different heights, so there's that. Yeah. It,
0: it's funny. So myself and JJ, we grow up basically within our culture as brothers.
2: Yeah. Pretty much. We're what, one year apart? Yeah, from one each other year apart. Yeah.
1: Wow. So and who's the who's the younger one?
2: Who looks younger? JJ, yeah. <laughs> correct,
0: correct. I've had a big weekend, all right? I'm, yeah. a bit, I'm a bit wrinkly. So, yeah, I was always the older brother in the sort of relationship that we had. Right. We spent a lot of time together.
1: Oh, cool. Okay.
0: And I've kind of touched upon this before. My journey with my mental health and JJ's journey with his mental health mm. both stem from very similar
2: upbringings. Yes, mm. yes. I think it definitely stems from, from childhood and I think um, just growing up in – Asian culture. Mm. I think a lot of people have similar experiences.
0: Yeah. Growing up, we were always compared with each other to the point where it was, it was quite crippling. And I don't think it was any fault of our family. It, it's kind of just a culture thing around Asians that, you know, you've got two people of similar age. Mm. You're really pushing for academics or pushing for achievements. And because I was almost a year older, mm. developmentally, I had the advantage, both academically wise, physically, So really, to compare the two of us at such an early age of our life, in retrospect, it really isn't a fair comparison because things
2: happen so much at that time in life. Mm. I would agree. I would agree. Yeah, I I think thinking back to childhood, it was a very, very prominent theme in our early years of getting compared to each other because obviously, you know, like uh, more specifically the academic side of things, you excelled very well. I didn't. So, yeah, that was probably the, the biggest thing, I think, was the, the school schooling aspect of things is always getting compared to you.
1: And um, would your parents do this in, like, quite an overt way? Like, kind of, if you did things at school, would they put them side by side or just speak comparatively? I think there would, would have been a
2: couple occasions. It, it was very long ago, but I, I would not be surprised if there were any situations where they did compare us face to face. But a lot of the time was just sort of... Within the privacy of our own home, my parents would always just, uh, yeah, just make comments on why I, you know, wasn't on the same level with Josh. So Right. Yeah. Okay. And uh, it wasn't just within
0: the home as well because this was something that really fueled me growing up. I felt like I didn't have value unless I was better than you Mm. or I beat you. And obviously, you know, I was more athletic and academic, but there was also situations where you and I would – fight physically to the point where, I don't know if you remember, but a few times they gave you a
2: blood nose.
1: Oh, like full on fighting, physical aggression. Yes. Was it
2: play fighting? It, It would have been play fighting, but, um, you know, Josh, we were young back then. So he, his, his ego probably got in the way and, you know, and just, uh, I guess damaged me than 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 what was necessary at the time. Do you know what I mean? But I, I don't think there was anything playful about it. When, yeah. when you think about our relationship yeah. growing up,
0: mm. and now you and I have a very the our, our relationship we have with each other has been an adventure. Yes, we have
2: We're not close, really. No, no. I, t- to be honest with you, I I probably had a, a very deep seated resentment for you for a, for a long long time. I remember we were very close as kids. Uh, you know, closest thing to brothers that you could possibly get. And then, I don't know, I would I would say probably early high school, late primary school is when, you know, when you just sort of get into the adolescence. You're finding your own identity. Yeah, yeah. And and I always, I remember me and you would were never really close for a long, long time other than we were kids. Yep. Um, and that was because I deep down, I guess, always thought that you were better than me in, in a lot of different areas. Yeah. And so yeah, I just um, had a resentment for you deep down because of all of that. It's so weird going back to childhood
0: because, yeah, there was a period for about 10 to 12 years where we basically haven't had a relationship. We didn't really speak to each other at all. Yeah. But I also had that resentment towards you when we were younger, even though my life was heading in a direction that was quite good for some reason. And it must have just gone back to that childhood upbringing that there were things that you would do every time you would get successful. I'd be very envious or jealous, mm. which is crazy thinking back to the way that our life basically started the same pathway, mm. but for whatever reason, we've gone like that. And yep. we both have our own mental health issues, but
1: yeah. I, it is strange. Why were you envious of JJ? Because it sounds like- yeah, I was going to ask saying, that. What, what, you what could he, you possibly have? Yeah, you always came up on top, like, because we heard about the physical aggression, but then you said academically- and in physical prowess you were also yeah up kind of on top so why were you envious of him
0: i guess and we'll, we'll touch on these themes to do with your adhd but there were things that when you put your mind to something you would succeed so jj was actually a really good chef growing up he went through a phase where he was really good at cooking he also went through a phase where he won what was it junior justice crew uh, yeah
2: junior justice crew dance
1: dance competition so Justice Crew being the...
0: You know that band, that Australian Idol band? Oh, okay. Full yeah. of like, yeah, they had a, comp- a dance competition. How would you describe the dance? breakdowns or...
2: Yeah, it would have been like hip hop. Oh, hip hop breakdance and they um yeah I, I auditioned online for their junior justice crew where they were gonna bring someone on to be in their music video sure so everyone from all of the states within australia submitted their like online dance audition i obviously did an audition and was picked one out of the five people from wa to audition in adelaide and they they flew us out me and mum. and oh
1: wow yeah
2: yeah it was quite it was quite good we uh Dance in front of like a one of the big shopping centers over there in Adelaide for like almost a thousand people.
1: Okay.
2: So, yeah, I was very, very um, heavy into the sort of arts as a kid, you know, mm. the cooking, the dancing, singing, even so as you're well.
1: A, you're a creative child, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wow. and I
2: still am. I would say I still am, definitely. So so yeah, JJ
0: would be left brain dominant. I'd more so right brain dominant, logical. Academic wise, you, you would see that success more, whereas JJ's amazing in that creative space. But every time he would either progress or he'd get praise in the family, that would trigger me quite a lot as a child. Wow. And there were a lot
2: of times as, as kids where um, our parents would always make like us perform and do the dance and singing performances, I could imagine that could probably grind yeah, your gears a little bit right. back then.
0: Eh? Well, we used to do tests, like we used to do math tests, spelling tests. Yes. We'd be sort of put to sing against each other. We'd be put to do Taekwondo oh, against yep. each other. Yep. Why? It, I don't know. Is that a culture thing?
2: I don't know. Maybe it was our parents trying to be like, you know, which which, uh, which one of the kids is more dominant. But I don't I don't think it would have been that because our our parents, uh, they loved, they loved us yeah, all. You know, amazing parents. Yeah, there was, yeah. yeah.
0: there was, was nothing negative, or I don't think really? it came from a it's, bad
2: place.
1: Uh, uh, yeah, I guess I, that sounds quite bizarre to me. I mean, I suppose i I can think of times when. Your family would compare you to other kids growing up your age, but it was also, it was always done very privately. I don't think it would ever, that conversation would ever be happened in a communal space where it sounds like, you know, they would make comments like that around you guys being similar to one another in front of you. Yeah.
0: Well, it, it's that, also the, the family okay. unit in Asian culture isn't just your yep. immediate family, it's your extended family as well.
1: Yeah. yeah. And yep.
0: uh, like my mum, obviously, coming from a family of nine, dad from a family of seven. There's a, probably a, a group of about 30 of us here in WA yep. where we always at family gatherings. Mm-hmm. And as part of that, the kids always have to do a show. Like even our younger cousins right now, we get them to sing. We get them to dance. Yeah. The aunties and uncles are
2: recording. It's, yeah. it's standard Filipino, Asian culture in general, I would say. But and f- Filipino Filipinos, culture
1: is quite performative, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yep. I mean, we definitely did all of that, but... I don't know, like those shows that... I mean, I did that with some of my cousins and my sister as well. But that was always just entertainment. It There wasn't anyone... I can't imagine our parents ever comparing us as in you did good or you did bad. Everyone just did really great. And even if you did a rubbish job, it was just clapping and stuff. But would you say like those... Your parts in those performances were taken to demonstrate your... I'm not
0: 100... I, I don't I think it. so. I think it, the genesis of it is still entertainment. But I think because of us we grew up always compared that in our heads, it wasn't really entertainment. It was,
2: we had to beat each other to prove our worth to our family. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, during those times of when it happened, we're, we're at the age where we're sort of, we internalize a lot of the stuff that happens to us at that age. So I guess, um, yeah, growing up having that happen on a on a regular basis, me and you both probably would have internalised a, a lot of it.
0: And there mm. were some real concrete examples where I think our family thought the more we praise, the more motivating the other person would feel. Mm. Um, and, and an example was, you know, I got a really good mark in high school and as a reward I got to go on a holiday with someone in the family. Mm. And, and that was sort of designed to, in a way, to try and motivate jj to do better at school so he could get a reward as well which he did not
1: yeah which he
2: did not tell us about how that felt for you well first off it didn't motivate me it it really it kind of just cemented the belief that i have in myself that i wasn't smart you know what i mean and i just felt like there was a bit of favoritism i mean you know more props to you. you you deserved that trip that you got but I don't know, me me and you being very similar age in the same year at school, it just kind of made me feel like shit, to be honest with you. It didn't, um, yeah, didn't motivate me in in the slightest.
1: And how did you feel going on that trip, Josh? Did you know it was used as a tactic to motivate JJ?
0: No, because at the time, you know, you just think about yourself. I didn't really think about the other, the cousins that we had. I assume that, you know, maybe they're going to get some sort of reward when they finish high school. Cause obviously being the oldest one, I only knew what was in front of me at the time.
1: So but it wasn't until
0: a few years after that I was like, Oh shit,
2: like that was fucked. Yeah. Yeah. Looking back at it now, it was, it was kind of, uh, but yeah, like there was no resentment towards the, you know, the person who took you on holiday or anything like that, but it was more just like, "Ah, oh, well, you know, I, I don't really have anything to offer. Yeah, you know, no one's really praised me for what I've done in school. Even though I tried very hard in school back then, I just um just was not able to to perform mm. at your level. You know,
1: what were some of the barriers to you performing at school, JJ?
2: I just, I just, you know, we're going to touch on this later when it when we talk about the ADHD stuff. But I, yeah, ever since my earliest memories in school, I I just never had the the capabilities to be able to, you know, sit down and, and focus in class like like other kids and. I would remember all the time I, my parents would, would hound me, more, more particularly my mum, just about like, you know, they pay good money to put me in expensive private schools and, you know, the least that they expect is just for me to do well in my studies. But no matter how much I tried to study and put my head down, um, I, I could not get anything higher than your average C's, sure. I, would, I would say
1: is that something from like asian culture the expectations around academic success
2: yeah yeah 100% i mean you know our family were immigrants from from the philippines you know so they they've been through the struggle coming from that environment to a to a first world country um they just want their kids to do well in life i guess they didn't want us to go through the same struggle as as them so to them it's uh you know go to school go to uni get a job and that's that's happy days so that's i think why they put so much importance on the, the studies and the academic side of things because that was the be-all, end-all, really.
0: Now, JJ, can you tell
2: us about your experience with social anxiety? Yeah, sure. So, um, I'd say, yeah, social anxiety is probably something that I've struggled with, yeah, ever since I could remember. Hey, I think over the last few years, is it, it's increased a lot more over the past few years just with a, a bunch of stuff that has gone on in my life, but... Yeah, social anxiety, I've, I've suffered from that ever since early school days. What um, is that? Like, how does it feel, you mean? Or yeah,
1: well, can you describe it to me?
2: I guess the easiest way for me to explain what social anxiety is like is always anticipating the worst. You know, for example, if I have uh, you know, a party that I've got planned to attend to with some friends, from the moment I wake up, mostly, I'd just be thinking about it the whole day. And just anticipating sort of what the conversation's gonna be like, or you know how I'm gonna introduce myself to the new people that come to the party. So it's just sort of always anticipating the worst, always thinking about the worst case scenario, and just sort of yeah, you you you're the one that's making it hard for yourself because you're always anticipating the future and thinking about the worst case scenario when um, how does that half mind? the time it never really happens ninety percent of the time whatever you think about. doesn't doesn't happen. So it's a waste of energy really.
1: So like I'm trying to imagine that like if I've got something to like a party to look forward to, I'll be thinking about that party all day, but I'll probably be viewing it in a positive light. Like it's not uncommon for me to think, oh wow, that's coming up. That's really good. What am I going to wear? What am I going to do? How am I going to dance? But you've obviously got a completely different experience of that. So is it physiological symptoms that are coming out? Is it patterns of thinking? Because I'm just, I'm so curious about where the difference is because I'm going to be looking forward to it where it sounds like, are you dreading the party?
2: That that would be a good word to describe it. I okay. think Um, in, in terms of your question before, if there's physical, if it's physical or just sort of psychological, it's both, I would say. The physical is just, I guess, the similar physical symptoms that you'd get for... When you're overly excited, you know your heart beats racing quick. You, for me, I can't sit still. Constantly pacing, bouncing my leg, and, and then it, the I think it gets to the point where the best way to absolve your body
0: of those symptoms is to avoid whatever is the trigger. And mm. for you, it's mm. that social situation. So it would be very common for you to bail on going to something.
2: Yes, yes. So th- that's that's a good point to make actually because. Um, Having having social anxiety, it I don't have the best track record of keeping friendships long term. If that makes sense, because yeah, when you have social anxiety, you you know you'll make plans and then on the day of the event, you'll um you'll you'll look for an excuse, you'll find an excuse to to bail, and so I've done that a lot. So had a lot of friends walk out, and which is understandable. You know what I mean? I I, I don't don't blame them to be honest with you, because I wouldn't want that, but. Yeah, it's uh, it can be quite debilitating and it has a, definitely an effect on my personal relationships and and how I maintain those relationships as well.
1: What does it feel like when you give an excuse? Does it feel like instant relief? Does it absolve all your symptoms?
2: It's uh, I'd say it's mixed emotions. There's definitely the instant relief and then there's also that part of me where I just feel like a shit friend or a shit person because, yeah, I would always be telling myself like, look, don't cancel on, on this event or, you know, you, you're going to make promises to myself that I'm going to attend. But, yeah, a lot of the time
1: the anxiety can take over and I just end up bailing. Um, and what happens in those cases where you force yourself to go? Because I'm guessing that there'll be cases where you really want to cancel but you don't. Mm, what happens then? Do the symptoms get worse or do you get exposure and I, you think, oh, I,
2: I, w- I would say that if if I decide to not – listen to my inner voice and, and cancel the event. If I, you know, physically turn up and attend, it's overwhelmingly, yeah, I get overwhelming anxiety leading up to it. Basically, even when I'm there, I'm completely anxious. Like I I don't feel like I'm present in the moment. Um, But then I'd maybe after about an hour or so, once I've sort of warmed up to people, then it's, um, I'm kind of like glad that I didn't bail. If that makes sense.
0: I can make a comment. Um, Even just with our family gatherings, you find that quite anxiety provoking. And for a space of about 10 years, if you were to come to a family dinner, which we have quite often, it wouldn't be uncommon for you to hide yourself in the room for the three hours. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's um, historically, if you look at all the uh, family gatherings that we've had, I'm very well known to, you know, I'll say hi to everyone, be respectful, but yeah, a lot of the time you'll sort of find me just hiding in one of the rooms or playing with the kids because I just can't be bothered being social really. And yeah, it's, it's easier for me to just not have to engage in, in conversation.
1: And a do you lot feel, do you feel safe when you're in a separate room? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And then you, when you come out into the main room, you feel like you're going to throw up or you've just, I, think I guess, I, horrible? no,
2: I don't, I don't say, uh, I wouldn't say I feel like throwing up, but for me, it's kind of just, it gives me anxiety because it's, the thought of having to engage in conversation is just like, oh, I'm going to have to be present in the conversation. I'm going to have to make eye contact. And as an introvert, I would prefer to just be by myself if if I can.
0: Now, in, in terms of your, your social anxiety, um, this is a, a great segue into the next part of our interview. You're happy for us to talk about some of the, the ways that you coped, in, in particular the way that you would
2: abuse drugs? Yes, yes. Now, can you tell us about the
0: first time drugs
2: came into your life? Of course. So, God, where do I start? So drugs drugs have been in my life for a, for a long time. I'd say the first time I was introduced to drugs, which was weed, uh, would, would have been when I was about 14 or 15 years old. I personally sort of never had any friends that were sort of doing that sort of stuff. I ended up making friends with a particular person in high school that was into all that sort of stuff and then they introduced me to that and then the rest is, is history. So,
0: And they say weed very much is a, a gateway drug. How,
2: how does that sort of sit with you? I think it definitely has the potential to be a gateway drug. I, I don't think it's right to say that weed in itself is a gateway drug and shouldn't be touched, but I think depending on the individual personality on the person, I think it definitely can be a gateway drug, which it was for me.
1: Yeah. When was the first time that you... Got high? Yeah, essentially. <laughs> and what did it feel like?
2: So I think the the first time I would have smoked weed, yeah, would have been when I was 14, 15. Um, I didn't get high the first two times I smoked. So it would have been the third time I smoked that I got high for the first time. And I remember it, it like it was yesterday, to be honest, it was as hard as this is for me to admit... I yeah, I was smoking in my parents' house on the third time when everyone was asleep. And I remember, yeah, just just this overwhelming euphoria came above me and just uncontrollable laughter and just a sense of happiness. That was the first time
1: I felt it. Sorry, were you by yourself?
2: Yes. Yes, I was by myself.
0: When it comes to anxiety, I, I like to think that it, it is your mind is on a treadmill and it, it just doesn't stop. It keeps going. It comes up with all these hypotheticals. Do you feel that when you were smoking weed and when you were high, it was the first time in your life that all that
2: just stopped? Yeah, yeah. It's um. It definitely quieted my mind. I remember the the yeah that first time that I got high. It was yeah. I just felt it's it's hard to put into words, but I just felt this over. This overarching sense of being okay and everything, everything was okay. So, yeah, it did, it did alleviate some of the, I guess, symptoms that I was having, you know, the racing mind, all that sort of stuff. So, it, it did definitely alleviate that. And I think from that moment was just like, once I got a taste of it, it was, yeah. From there, I just wanted to keep experimenting with, with different, different drugs. So, so, after weed, what? After the weed would have been that's when we move into the pills. So next one I think would have been MDMA. That's yeah, my friend gave me that for first night that I went out clubbing when I just turned 18. Didn't really dabble too much in the in the MDMA, only a couple of times here and there, but that would have been the second one I experimented with, yeah. And then from there, from there the second one after that, third one, sorry, would have been codeine pills. Um and this was back in 2015 when i was hanging out with a group of friends and this particular friend had a a grandpa that was sick and he was he had like a bunch of these codeine pills and then so my friend would steal them and then he was selling it to me and i was kind of um yeah just chucked myself in the deep end with that for a good couple of weeks i would have gone longer if i had the if he had more pills but Luckily, his grandpa ran out of the stock, so it was only a couple of weeks. I was taking quite a lot every day. How many every day? About six, six to eight.
1: Okay. And what does it feel like to be on codeine?
2: Oh, man, it was, I was I was literally a potato. It would turn me into a potato. I still remember the first time I, I took it um, and I was laying in bed and just, you know, I popped, I think it was six of them. At and once? At once, yeah. Wow. And then... About an hour later, I just this this feeling just came over my body of just feeling just loose. If that makes sense, it's yeah, that's the best way I could describe it. Was just feeling loose. I couldn't move, even though I wanted to move. My body was just sort of like frozen, um, and I just felt like I had no no problems in the world. Really, I looking back now, I really really got deep into the like depressive kind of drugs, the ones that slow you down, like the... Because codeine, that's a painkiller. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah,
1: as yeah. far as I'm aware of, yeah. Yeah. And so, JJ, you took six mm-hmm. the first time. Now, I've had codeine. A lot of people have it after surgery. Two pills completely knocks me out. What on earth possessed you to take six at once?
2: Ah, Man, I still ask myself that question to this day. I don't know, with me, I'm just the type of person that's sort of like a go hard or go home type type person, you know what I mean? Like, I know that if I was just to take one or two of those codeine pills, it you know, it would probably relax me and make me feel good. But my sort of thought process was that if I'm going to do these drugs, I want to get fucked up, if that makes sense. So yeah, I just, yeah, just wanted to feel something really.
1: Were you ever scared of the consequences of taking six at once? Because I think a lot of people may think, wow, I wonder what happens if I take more than the recommended, but then would not do that because of safety. So would you say you were quite reckless?
2: Yes. Yes. There was always that thought process in the back of my mind of, you know, what if this kills me or maybe I'm taking too much or whatever. But I guess the instant gratification that I got from getting high off it just overpowered any. Any uh, thoughts that I had of, of not going through with it because of the con- potential consequences, you know.
0: So when your access to codeine stopped, you transitioned into
2: something else. When, when the when the when the access to the codeine stopped, I um, I kind of just basically went back to smoking weed like crazy again. Think there may have been a couple of times where I dabbled in cough syrup, Robert Tussin, and then maybe some other ones, but I, that. I can't recall them at the minute. What do you mean, dabble in Robertussin? So I would um, I would get high off Robertussin, yeah. What is that? You've not heard of Robertussin? It's cough syrup. Okay. That really yucky cough syrup tastes like cherry. It tastes absolutely disgusting. And
1: and what does it give you? What does it alleviate? Cause it, I,
2: I wouldn't say it, it alleviates anything. To be honest, it's more of an escape. So for me, it didn't really eliminate or slow down any of the anxious or depressive thoughts that I would have or anything like that but it would just sort of put me in a in a mental state where I kind of had no idea what was going on really so I didn't yeah I couldn't think of my problems because I just I was in just that much of a, of a trip that
1: so you were no. trying to escape, escape that kind of negative commentary of your life or those feelings of social anxiety.
2: It, yeah, it's it was that, and then if I am being completely honest, it was just to cure boredom as well at the time. It, you know
1: you weren't working or you didn't have studies.
2: No, I, no, I mean I was studying, I was in school, but uh, I guess yeah. Although I had a, a, a close group of friends at that time, I am. I've always, I've always just been very interested in um, going in different mind mind states, you know what I mean? So, yeah, so I dabbled in the Tussin,
1: and that was – Did so. you – when you say school, were you in high school?
2: Yeah, and yeah, so the Tussin would have been probably like a year after the the weed, so I'd probably have been 15, 16. Because Tussin
0: is something that you can just get over the
2: counter. Yes, it a, is. A, at a chemist, now yeah. they tend to be a bit more cautious also, with yeah. it, yeah. Yeah, because people are just there's a bit of an epidemic, I think, of people just abusing it. Is that right? Yeah, the active ingredient in the Robitussin is dextro, dextromethorphan, is, so, is something like that, and that was the um, Robitussin was pretty much the only cough syrup that had that active ingredient. So it was that's why it was the Robitussin, because the other one is just yeah, they will, you won't get high if you drink the other cough syrups. And would you need to consume a lot of it to feel the effects of mm. being high? Funny story, actually, so first. First experience I had with Robert Tussin. This was about fifteen, sixteen. Again, I was in a park with uh, my friend, and um, yeah, we were just bored. We were like, you know, we didn't have access to weed, so what's the next best thing? Is, is cough syrup? We went into the the chemist near to the park that we was chilling at, bought two bottles of Robert Tussin, uh, went back to the park, and then uh, yeah, we just started sipping on it. So. She, she started sipping on it, you know, just slowly, gradually, um, dickhead me. I uh, pretty much sculled the entire bottle because um, I didn't know what the dosage was. So I was just like, mm. you know, just, just just drink it. So I drank the entire bottle in under one minute, I'd say. I almost threw up. And then, yeah, we went, walked back to her house about a 20-minute walk and nothing was happening. I was like, do I need to drink more? Do I need to buy another bottle? Um, so we went back to her house, was chilling in her room. And then, no joke, about two, three hours later, that's when it started to kick in. And um, I just remember just when I was I was laying on my friend's bed and um, everything just started just going like wavy. Like the walls, when I would look at the walls, everything was just moving. Had no idea where I was. My friend's friend actually came over on that day. She was sober. She didn't have any Robert tussin, but... I remember specifically asking her, I was like, where am I? I, I think I'm going to die. I genuinely thought I was going to die because I just had no idea what was going on. So, yeah, that was um, a crazy, crazy experience. And then about 30 minutes later after that, my friend, you know, the the one that I did the Robert Tussin with, she, she wasn't waking up. Um, she, you know, she wasn't uh, – it wasn't fatal or anything, but she just – She wasn't waking up, her parents were like sort of slapping her, and then, yeah, they were panicking, they were sort of interrogating me and the other friend that was there, and just saying, you know, what did you guys take, tell me now, or else I'm going to call your parents, Uh, obviously I didn't want to disclose anything, so just kept my mouth shut, then they called the ambulance to come to the house, because, you know, my friend wasn't waking up, and they threatened to call my parents, so basically... I feel like a shit person still to this day from doing it but I basically ran from the house um yeah I, I walked out of the house and I, I had no choice but to walk home high as high as fuck really um off the Robert and I couldn't walk straight um and still to this day I I wondered how I got home safely uh, but it was it was a crazy crazy experience
1: so did yeah. you think your friend was going to die at that point
2: yeah, I was, I was genuinely scared, man. I mean, the, the moment I got home, I pretty much messaged her and just, you know, she didn't reply for a couple of hours, which really made me shit myself. Um, then after a couple of hours in the night time, she messaged me back and yeah, that really messed up our friendship. We couldn't be friends anymore after that.
1: So you thought she was going to die, but you still didn't want to disclose what you had taken
0: It's almost that the fear of your parents finding out was stronger than the fear of her dying that you had to protect.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you, when you put it like that, that's, that's really what it was. And again, I still feel like a, a horrible friend and a bad person from, from, you know, when that happened. But I just, yeah, no matter what, I just could not have my parents find out. I mean, you know what my mom's like. She would absolutely tear me anew. She would have found out that I was you know, dabbling in recreational drugs. But,
1: but your friend was going to die.
2: I kind of just... I guess my thought process at that point was just like, you know, I, I really hope she doesn't, you know? just couldn't not, I could not get in trouble by my parents. It was... yeah.
0: And that incident in itself, was that enough to turn you away from taking drugs?
2: I mean, you'd think so, but I guess that's not really how the mind of a drug addict works. You know what I mean? Like, there was many... Uh, Occasions that happened in my life where you'd think that would be enough of a catalyst for me to stop the drugs, but no. So let's talk about. You went through
0: a bit of a crisis, but let's talk about some of the the build up to that, and in particular, what were
2: you using at the time? I'd say about October. No, no, sorry. About September. September October is when I started dabbling in benzodiazepines, more specifically the Xanax. Never tried it before that point, but um, yeah, September, something like that, last year. Now,
0: Benzos, f- I, I, I must admit, I don't really know what they're used for. Is that the it's a muscle
1: relaxant, first and foremost? Yeah. But they're also used to calm anxious symptoms, aren't they?
0: So, so my first question would how how would you access this? Through the black
2: market. So, um, yeah, I've had my, my fair share of experiences on the black market.
1: How do you access that? I mean, obviously it's not a one-stop shop. It refers to the underworld of drugs, but how would you access your sources?
2: Yeah, great question. So uh, I won't say the name of the app, but it's a very well-known app that uh, a lot of people go on where you – I think it's encrypted, something like that, so your identity is, yeah, disclosed. No one, No one knows who anyone is. So I would get on that app. Um, There were many, many different types of groups that you could join, like pharmaceuticals north of the river, pharmaceuticals south of the river. So I would just join a bunch of these groups and just message the groups and just saying, hey, I'm I'm chasing Xanax. Uh, DM me if you have any. And then, yeah, that's how I would find it that way. So just, yeah, joining random groups and, yeah.
1: When was the first time that you took Xanax? Uh,
2: About September, September, October I'd say. And the scenario? Year. Okay yeah so I remember now. So what, what led me to wanting to try Xanax was the, the series of events before this point was uh, I had a, a boxing match that um, I was fighting in for. It was like this event at, at Metro City. It was my first sort of exhibition fight. Um, it was very very Committed to it, put in a lot of work. Anyways, I had the fight; did not go well at all. Um, A lot of people sort of came to support me, and I sort of made a big deal out of it, you know, um, because I was I was super excited. And
0: it was massive at the time. This is again one of those hobbies that you had that you put all your time and energy and really excelled in.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, And
0: you had this big event. You invited a lot of the family.
2: Yeah. Yep. Invited pretty much everyone I know advertised it on my Facebook. But so a lot of people seen that happen and a lot of people came and, and watched me and supported me and it did not end well. And I guess, um, yeah, that was sort of the event that really triggered me. And I just sort of felt like worthless. I felt like a burden. I felt like people paid money to come and see me and support me and I didn't deliver. And then, so I just went into this down spiral of just feeling, like, worthless well, and depressed. To, to, to back up the
0: event in itself, like, it, it more than didn't go well. You got knocked out pretty
2: yeah, quickly. Yeah, I, I mean, I I basically didn't even make it past the first round. You know, there's, there's many reasons as to why it went down the way it did, um, but I won't get into that. But, yeah, basically just didn't go well. Um, I was quite embarrassed because I didn't put on the show that I thought I was going to put. Um, and then, yeah. That just put me into this spiral of, yeah, just feeling crap about myself and just feeling like shit. So I just wanted to try something
1: else. So you were humiliated. Yeah, yeah. Because that's a good word. in boxing, someone's got to lose, right? Yeah. And, but it was more than losing. It was the fact that you were embarrassed about your performance
0: Mm. and this was a big thing for our family as well it was the first time JJ had basically something that was about him something that he was
2: really talented in there was a lot of excitement going into it yeah yeah and and I think that was that was probably the biggest reason as to why it affected me so hard it was because I I put my heart and soul into it you know what I mean and people knew that I was serious about it and I was at the time and it just didn't go go to plan. So yeah, went out there and sourced something else. I heard Xanax was good, heard that it sort of um, melted away all your problems and um, just made you happy. So took it upon myself to try and source a plug for, for Xanax and yeah, that's where it started. And so at your worst, how much were you taking? So at my peak, the amount of Xanax that I was taking was about 12 milligrams a day. So six times two milligram pills a day and that that was about for a consistently for about two three months 12 milligrams a day
1: what does xanax make you feel like what symptoms do you get
2: it, it's funny man because when when you take xanax especially if you take a you know the amount that i did you feel great at the time like you just there's no no worries in the world like i, I could honestly safely say that if I was on Xanax and got into a car crash it wouldn't even faze me because yeah I'll be able to see it there physically like oh fuck I'm in a car crash but I would just have no sort of concerns about it so it really just took away all of my depression it just sort of made me feel nothing which is what I wanted at that time and the funny thing about Xanax is you know it's it's so enjoyable when you're on it but you don't remember it the next day so it's just like You're spending money to get high, but you don't even make memories from it. You don't even remember it the next stage and you black out pretty much. And how would this affect you? Because you were working full time at that stage. Oh man, Uh, to this day, looking back at it now, you know, now that I'm clean, looking back at it now, it's just, I don't know how I managed to beat it, to be honest, because yeah, like you said, I was trying to keep my job. I was just trying to live my life as a normal adult. You know what I mean, and during that time of the xanax abuse it was I had pretty much just recently started a new job at that point, and it was it was hard, man, like i um I don't even know how I managed to keep my job to would, this day would you be high at work? There were times where the, yeah there were times where i I wouldn't say I was high at work, but I was sort of still experiencing like a xanax hangover if that makes sense the next day, so I was not there. At all, like there were times at work, right, where because I work in recruitment, so there were times where I'd be speaking to candidates, I'd phone them up, chat to them about what they're looking for, this and that, and then the next day I would call them because I forgot that I spoke to them the previous day, and say, well, there were quite a few occasions where I would phone the can the same candidate the day after, and then they would I've had actually had a person tell me like, bro, you just called me yesterday, don't you remember we had a long conversation yesterday? To be honest with you, I don't feel confident in you representing me if you can't even remember that we spoke the other day. So I had comments like that, you know what I mean? I I could barely do my job. Um, It was crazy. It was fucking crazy.
0: We're sort of building up to a point now where you you reached a breaking point and this is when it came – this is, for me, I recall – I don't know how to talk about this. There was a night – where I was sent some images of your Instagram story, um, which you had muted myself and a lot of our other family members. And there were comments around you were playing Juice World, which, uh, as a lot of people would know, his background with drugs and, and suicide and overdose. What's
1: Ju- that? Sorry,
2: Juice World's a musician. That just so, got- yeah, so Juice World is basically like a yeah, rapper, singer. And yeah, he, his songs revolved a lot around the abuse of drugs, and then he basically died at an airport at the age of 21 because of Xanax. Yeah, and he had
0: a very big following. Mm. So you were playing music about that. There was comments about you calling a lifeline. You actually said you were in self-destruct mode, and there was pictures of you hiding in your toilet at work. And these things were forwarded to me by a family friend, and they were confused as to what was going on with you. At this stage, it's probably been about 10 years since you and I had ever had a conversation, <laughs> really. Yeah. But I, I yeah, I, I was up the whole night. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't, couldn't think. I was reflecting on some of the, the patterns of behaviours that I've noticed in you, like impulse buying. You had bought an Audi, even though you don't really have any money. The clothes you were buying was quite expensive. And I had noticed on your Instagram that you were quoting a lot of mental health things as well in a negative way. And I recall that night I was searching your socials. I'd sent you a text message at about 3am and I obviously didn't hear a response and it was saying, oh, look, I'm I'm so sorry that I haven't really been there for you over the last 10 years. I don't know why I'm messaging you, but I have this feeling in my gut and it's not a really nice feeling. And I said, please, like, I'd I'd love to see you the next day and I I love you and, Yeah. yeah, it was... It was very tough. Um, I, I think what triggered me was I, I saw your Facebook account or all your socials were um, deleted. deleted. And on your Facebook was a picture of you as a child
2: in black and white. Mm. I remember that night, man. It was... Um, oh, God, it was crazy. It, that, that That night that you actually messaged me was it was crazy how it works because that was the night that I finished the, the bottle of pills that I had that night. And, um, I remember this was, uh, yeah, it would have been about November, December last year when you randomly messaged me at like two, three AM. And, uh, at that point I remember I was just laying in bed. I wasn't able to sleep eyes wide awake. Um, I don't know if any of you guys have heard of uh, kava. Have any of you heard of kava? Okay, so kava is basically, it's a... uh,
1: Oh, it's a drink. It's
2: a drink, yeah. So the Pacific Islanders have used that for thousands of years. It's like a a substitute for alcohol, basically. Mm -hmm. So a couple of days prior, because I knew I was going to run out of pills, I bought a bottle of uh, kava capsules from Chemist Warehouse. And um, yeah, that night, that... That Josh messaged me, um, and I just you know didn't sleep. I basically hadn't slept for two days, two whole days. At that point, yeah, that night I was just withdrawing off the benzos, of the Xanax because I didn't have any, and I was just, I was panicking, man. Um, so I basically downed that entire bottle of Kava. You know, I think there was about twenty or thirty pills left in the bottle. Wow. I doubt. Yeah, I downed that entire bottle of Kava because I was I was withdrawing that hard from the Xanax. I just needed something. Then the carver didn't work. I That very night, um, I don't remember falling asleep, but I woke up the next day for work and I had deep scratches all over my face. My my pillow was soaked in blood. Um, I had no idea what happened. I think I just had an episode of, of psychosis uh, from the Xanax withdrawal. But it was just crazy that Josh had messaged me at that particular time when I was, you know, when I just ran out of pills and I, I was, yeah, genuinely pondering you know ending
1: it at that point so did you care if you died when you took 20 pills no
0: not at all okay not at all so so we went out for dinner that next day yes and i felt so nervous going like more nervous than going on a first date because i have not had a conversation a proper conversation with you in about 10 years and i
2: i didn't know what we would talk about i'd I know that uh, when, when we planned that dinner that entire day as, as I do I was just anticipating like what the hell are we going to talk about we, we don't really have a relationship me and Josh really so uh, yeah it was um, I was just anxious the whole day thinking what is it going to be like just me and you, you know, we're kind of forced to talk at that point but it was. I'm glad we did because that, that really changed our relationship for the, for the better moving forward And it was
0: good because we could talk quite openly about what you were going through as well. And Mm. From my background, and I I had chats with my dad about it, having him being a mental health nurse, and we started to recommend that you linked in with a couple of services. Um, Mm. Would you be happy to talk about some of the services that you accessed?
2: Yeah, of course, of course. So during that time where I would say that was my absolute rock bottom, yeah, at that time I didn't have the funds to be able to get more pills. So I was like, man, I'm fucked up, man. I really need to do something here. So yeah, it got to the point where, um, you know, I admitted myself to a public hospital just for some urgent help. So yeah, I had to wait in like the hospital waiting room for like three hours with my mum. Then finally one of the public psychiatrists seen me and then they referred me to Armadale because I'm within that sort of area. And then, yeah, access the uh, public psychiatry services. There was quite a long wait, quite a long wait to, to get in there and a lot that, you know, big process. But, um, yeah, it was good to know that they had those public uh, services available.
0: What about more so the crisis
2: services? Yeah, so I think there, there was multiple occasions where I actually phoned up Lifeline yeah, just because I, I didn't know what to do with myself. I was genuinely scared that I was going to hurt myself. So, yeah, there was quite a few times I've spoken to Lifeline and it was, it's quite a helpful service, really. Yeah, you'd speak to a crisis worker on the line and that, you know, you just talk to them about what thoughts are going through your head at that time and they'll stay with you on the phone for as long as, as you need. Like the lady that I spoke to that one time was willing to wait on the phone, chat to me for the entire night. Yeah, so the, the, I think those services are very, very helpful f- for people, and it's good to know that we have stuff like that here yeah. in Australia.
0: So, so Lifeline was obviously one that you use. It's a twenty four mm. hour crisis support. Mm. The other one that I, I sent you was Merl, the Mental Health Emergency Response Line. Yes, which is another triage service for mental health, mm. and of course, I just want to drop in there. Headspace is another one that mm. engages young people with mental health issues. Mm. Now JJ can you talk us through the the turning point in your life you, you were having seizures uh trying to break away from your benzo use
2: yeah yeah so throughout the entire journey of of the starting the benzos getting off the benzos yeah i've had about 5 seizures in total uh first seizure was a uh, this this event in itself should have been a turning point for me, really, but it wasn't at the time. So, first seizure that I had was, um, yeah, 31st of December 2021, I remember it, yeah. I was about to leave the house to meet a friend in the morning, um, but I was running on, yeah, I didn't sleep for about two, three days at that point. So I was like, nah, you know, I'll just get my friend to come over here. So I didn't end up driving in in the car. And then about 30 minutes later, I just remember the paramedics at my door and my mum's, me being on the floor, like just laying on my back. Um, And my brother just sort of like, yeah, just swearing and screaming and worried uh, because my mum basically... Yeah, found found me convulsing on the floor um, from the withdrawal from the Xanax. Yeah, so that was the first seizure that I had. And then when I was in the hospital, I had to stay there overnight for a day or two. And then the reason why I knew I had another seizure that, that day was because I was just eavesdropping on one of the other patients that was in the same room. And um, yeah, he was talking shit about how he couldn't sleep that night because I was having seizures and all that. A couple couple of months, didn't have any seizures, and then, yeah, three in the space of two, three months.
1: JJ, can I take you back to when you kind of woke up on the floor, thinking about your mother yeah. finding you like that and your brother screaming? How does that make you feel now, knowing what that situation would have looked like and how they might have been feeling? To be honest
2: with you, man, like even though it's been
1: a year, over a year,
2: since that happened i still get flashbacks from it really like i still i still remember you know what my brother was saying there's a moment that really sticks with me you know i remember just waking up from the seizure that i had when i was on the floor and everything was sort of a blur to me at that time but i remember you know clearly seeing my brother like throwing my vape at the wall. Like he ditched at the wall and he was just saying something along the lines of, like, he needs to fucking stop this shit. And just, and that was the first time that I sort of like legit seen my brother like angry and upset and sad. And I was like, holy, holy crap. He, he genuinely cares.
0: Now, your relationship thing. with your brother is similar to the relationship that you have with me. It's yeah. He's about, what, five years
2: younger than you? Seven. Seven, Seven years. Yeah. So. Me and my brother, like, very close, you know, growing up as kids. But I think, yeah, towards, like, late high school for me and after high school years is, you know, when I, when it really started to become apparent, like, my mental health issues, I think that's sort of when it started to go downhill, the relationship that I have with my brother. And and, and it's not to say that, like, we don't love and respect each other, but it's more that, you know, we're we're not as close as I'd, I'd like us to be if that makes sense. So yeah, I mean, seeing my brother that, you know, act up like that when I had my seizure and like, you know, we we don't really talk as much or have a really like super, super close tight relationship. It just sort of impacted me that much more because it was like, like shit, he, he, he cares. And that's the first time that I've like really seen him like physically show it, you know what I mean? So yeah, it was quite intense. So that for you, would you say that was your your turning point? It was for a while. Like after that first seizure or two that I had, you know, late December, 2021, I sort of, yeah, after I stayed those two days at the hotel, I was like, no, nah, I'm going to make 2022 my year. And, you know, I'm going to stop all drugs, even coffee. I tried to stop coffee because I just didn't want anything in my system. And then I think, to be completely honest with you guys, I think that lasted for about a week or two, and then
0: well, you were taking six benzos a day,
2: yeah, cold yeah. turkey, and it, yeah, so that lasted for about a week or two, and then next thing you know, two weeks later, I'm at I'm I'm GP shopping, going to different GPs and just talking shit and saying, "Look, I need benzos. Can you give it to me?" And I think I went doctor shopping to about four or five different GPs, which was looking back now, it's like man can't believe you did that. And, and you managed to get? Yeah, I managed to get a couple of scripts from random doctors that I've never seen before, you know what I mean?
1: What would you say to them? How would you get them?
2: I, w- I would, um, it, it's funny because the first random doctor that I went to, this was like a, a couple of weeks after I had my first seizure. And at that time I was, and we can chat about this later as well, but I was also, you know, taking a bit of dexamphetamine as well, dexies. So basically I told the doctor, I said, look, I've been taking dexies for this long. I'm having withdrawal symptoms. I need, I need some, uh, some benzos. I've heard Valium is good and that's all it took. He just, he gave me a script for, for, for Valium and, um, that's yeah, pretty crazy. I know, I know. Right. Look, looking back at it now, I'm just thinking, man, there are some really dodgy doctors out there and, um, you can get anything you want really if you know how to talk the talk. So yeah.
1: What, degree do you blame the doctor for that decision and what degree do you blame yourself though because you lied about that so whose fault was it that it was prescribed
2: i i think i think it was probably mostly my fault because um yeah i obviously went in there you know with a sob story and really played the part well you know i'll give myself that i played the part really well um and I think he was just doing his job. So I, I wouldn't blame the doctor, but I, in, in in saying that, I also do think that there are other steps that you can take before prescribing benzos straight away, if that makes sense. Because, yeah, I don't think people realise like how, how um, dangerous benzos actually are. Like that and alcohol is literally the only two drugs that can cause death by withdrawal. Um, not even methamphetamine or, or heroin can really do that, so... Yeah, I was just surprised that uh, all it took was for me to just tell a little sob story, and there you go. There's
0: well, I guess that's the power of addiction, right? You yeah, you know what your fix is, and you'll do anything to get it. Yeah,
2: I know.
1: What does it feel like when you're coming off benzos? Man, it's
2: I wouldn't I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. Honestly, it's um, it's like all the symptoms that I was taking the benzos for to. Uh, suppress like the anxiety the racing mind the depression all that sort of stuff when you're coming off the benzos it it basically comes back 10 times worse so the symptoms that you were trying to eliminate come back tenfold worse so the insomnia was just unbearable I would I would have days at a time where I wouldn't sleep Um, I would have panic attacks going to work every morning like crying in the toilets, like you were saying on my lunch break. I definitely wasn't the same person.
0: Yeah. And I remember you telling me at the time you, you'd need benzos at night just to turn your mind off. But because of the reaction the next day, you'd have to self medicate with Dexies just to be able to perform at work.
1: Yeah. Yep. So, so you were bringing yourself down for nighttime and then bringing yourself up at the beginning of the next day. Yep. Yep. When you took that amount of benzos, did you feel like in your peak of? six or 12 a day when you took it did you feel high or did you just feel normal like did you get those feelings of complete euphoria again that you first experienced because you were taking a huge dose or had your body just no no
2: yeah good point actually so yeah I would say that during the early stages of the the Xanax use like yeah that euphoria was just amazing It would just that that would last for a good couple of hours and then Towards towards the sort of, um, you know, when I f- started to taper because I had to wean off gradually over the space of 12 months. Yeah, when, when I started getting to a low, low dose and I would consider a low dose of two milligrams and below. When I was at my tapering for two milligrams and below, like I, I, I literally wasn't even taking it to feel good. It was literally taking it to avoid seizures at that point. Because, yeah, it, like there were times where you know, haven't taken it for a day or two. And, you know, I was just, the anxiety was through the roof. I would get physical symptoms where my muscles were twitching, like involuntary, get tunnel vision where I just, yeah, I just couldn't focus on anything. I just would have this weird tunnel vision and sounds were just louder than they, than they usually are around me. And it was just, um, it was just overwhelming to, to be in public. Really. It was scary. Yeah. And you did have a couple of incidents in public where you'd have those seizures. Yeah, yeah, the the most uh, notable event that I had, I, I forgot when this would have been. It probably would have been around August last year. Um, yeah, I was... They, this was when I first started tapering, so this is when I had seen a doctor and he put me on a tapering schedule to wean my way off the benzos and... Um, when I first started the tapering schedule, I was very, very motivated. Like I I basically took less than what his recommended taper was. You wanted um, to but, rush Yeah, it I wanted there. to rush it because I was like, I want to get off this ASAP. So I took less than what he originally recommended for the taper. And I remember I was at the gym at this time. It was Bailey's gym uh, at night time. It was packed at the gym about seven o'clock. And um, I was just remember just, you know, Lifting weights and um, yeah, next thing I know it, like I'm waking up from the floor and um, there's two paramedics around me. There's the entire gym is pretty much stopped what they're doing. And I had like 10 people just sort of like stand up around me, looking down, just concerned and that. And then the paramedics had to take me to the side and ask me questions. I would not disclose a thing. Didn't tell them my name. Didn't tell them my address. Why is that? because they're going to send a letter to my house at that point. So I, I I don't know how I managed to do it, but I managed to convince the, the paramedics that I was fine to drive back home. So after about 30 after minutes, a yeah, after a seizure, bro. And um, so after about 30 minutes consultation with the paramedics going back and forth, they ended up taking their bags and just gone, going back, whatever. And then, um, yeah, I drove back home about, 30 minutes after a full seizure and um, yeah, I definitely wasn't all there. Hey, like my head, I was completely nauseous. I, my vision was blurry um, and I just drove home and acted like nothing happened. Never set foot back into that gym after that day.
0: Now let's talk about your, your journey to recovery. So part of it was this tapering process, but there was a lot of psychotherapy or a lot of other avenues that you were looking.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So therapy was um one of the big services that I utilized during my recovery period yeah I think therapy and more just like I guess soul searching is is probably the biggest things that I can say that really I guess helped me in my journey to recovery because I I had to do some serious thinking like you know, I've, I've done. Ther- I've been in and out of therapy since twenty eighteen. So, you know, there is stuff that I know in terms of coping strategies and all that sort of stuff. But I think I just sort of really needed to do a deep dive and, and think about my life and who I am and what I stand for. And, and um, yeah, just I think the combination of the therapy and my own sort of soul searching has uh, yeah, I guess got me to to where I'm at now.
0: What were the key themes in terms of soul searching?
2: I guess just thinking thinking back at my life, thinking about the series of events that led me to, to go down that path and, you know, once I've sort of come to terms as as to why I sort of went down that path, I guess it's tackling it from that aspect. Like, you know, I, I realised that the reason I went down that path of, you know, recreationally using drugs and then transition into abusing them was because of my my low self-esteem. You know what I mean, which stemmed from childhood. So, um, the soul searching and, and really just, just, um, yeah, learning to love myself again is a, is a really big one.
1: How much of that low self esteem stemmed from being compared with your cousin Josh?
2: Yeah, I think a, I think a lot of it did. I think that really sort of, yeah, it 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 made me internalize a, a core belief about myself that I I wasn't good enough. And that i wasn't worthy so you know i've always struggled with uh re- relationships in school and and all that sort of stuff so i think yeah going going through life with that mindset it's uh, it makes you prone to addictions and, and experimenting with drugs and, and stuff like that you know so
1: and on the flip side of that josh how do you feel knowing that those scenarios that happened back in your childhood cause someone that you care about to turn to abuse drugs to kind of escape those feelings?
0: Guilt would be the first thing that pops into mind and we've talked about this before and I know it's it's not my direct what I directly did but I can't help but feel like I had contributed to some of the um, emotions in the way that JJ would see the world and how that has impacted on his self-esteem and it also does make me feel quite grateful because realistically we had the exact same upbringing we had the exact same hand that life had given us Mm. yet I have gone in, in a really good direction in terms of where I'm going and yeah that night when you had overdose on those pills I couldn't help but think you know shit yes we don't have a relationship but it's almost like that—that that part of me, that childhood—it just made me feel so yucky.
2: It's—it's it, funny though, because of um, you know, as, as bad as as all this is, when when I look at the the positive side of things, I think if if none of this would have ever happened, I don't honestly think I can say that we would have a relationship. To be honest, like if if I didn't go through all that shit, I don't think we would have rekindled our relationship the way that we did you know it, it's just crazy that it took something you know that severe f- for us to be able to to build a relationship again you know what I mean mm. but so I think yeah everything happens for a reason and yeah so if, l- looking back at it now it's like yeah I mean it happened but it also there's a positive that came out of it yeah. so that we have a relationship now you know what I mean now, just
0: before we finish up, you were actually diagnosed with bipolar disorder late last year.
2: Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So this this uh, diagnosis was one that I got from a public psychiatrist that um, I was referred to when I accessed the public service. And it was, it was a very, very um, – it wasn't thorough at all, like – I had to wait for, you know, an appointment with one of the psychiatrists to be free. Uh, got that appointment, um, did about a 20-minute video call consultation thing and then told him about my symptoms and then, yeah, after that he was like, yeah, no, I th- I, you've got bipolar and then they prescribed me with a bunch of pills, lithium, propranolol, um, there's another ones that I can't remember, but it was, yeah, it was a very, very rushed diagnosis. Um and 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 looking back at it now um i d- i don't think it was so much of the fault from the doctor i think it was just circumstantial so the the circumstances that i was in at that time was you know when i had that consultation with the with the with the psych i was i was still withdrawing from the benzos you know what i mean so i would i was telling him you know i wouldn't sleep for days and then you know sometimes i'd be sleeping for 14 hours and i'd still feel tired and then those are very sort of core symptoms of, of bipolar. So it um, doesn't surprise me as to why they came up with that conclusion that I have bipolar.
0: And you took the medications
2: for about six months. Oh, about three, three, four months. And you yeah. didn't really notice any changes in your affect? No, no, they didn't They didn't do a thing. I, I gave them the opportunity to work because I knew the, the medications, you know, when it didn't, didn't act straight away. It, apparently it took a while for it to build up in your system. And so I gave it a chance yeah, for about three, four months, nothing, nothing changed. But deep down, you know, in my heart, like I knew, like I knew I didn't have bipolar. I, I knew walking into that appointment that, yeah, it's probably going to be ADHD. Um, but yeah, he, he said bipolar, but th- those bipolar medications did not, did not do a thing. So, so
0: tell us a bit more about the diagnosis of ADHD, because that's only
2: a recent thing. Yeah, yeah, so I only r- literally got diagnosed with it about two months ago. Yeah, so I I always sort of thought that I had ADHD and I think that sort of started when I started working full-time. Yeah, about 2018 is when I started working full-time and, you know, working in an office, you know, having to keep up with emails, having to multitask. I, I was struggling for quite a bit. And so it just sort of prompted me to look into whether or not I have ADHD and I've got a lot of friends that have ADHD and we're very similar. So that's sort of why I originally thought, yeah, I must have ADHD or something. And then so this year after everything that's happened, I, yeah, I just went through with the process because I wanted to sort of get the proper diagnosis, proper treatment and uh, live my best quality of life, I guess. And so getting that diagnosis, how, how has that
0: impacted you recently in your journey to recovery?
2: I guess g- getting that formal diagnosis, uh, the biggest thing I'd say that it's done for me is that it, it's really given me a lot of confidence to trust myself because um, I was gone through life, majority of the time, just sort of doubting myself if, if, my, if, if what I believe in is, is true or not. You know, I always thought I might have ADHD and every time I would tell family members or my friends they would they would always just sort of brush it brush it under the rug and just sort of like not really talk about it too much they they thought it was a bit of a like a fake illness if that makes sense um and then so finally getting that proper formal official diagnosis it was like okay I I, I knew all this about myself um and now I've got the official diagnosis from a professional it's like I can trust myself now you know what I mean and that and then also the the medications that they've put me on it's it's um it's night and day it's it's really helped me with just the adhd symptoms like my, my mind is is not racing 24 7 i'm not as impulsive it just allows me to have a, a clear head really yeah it's definitely definitely uh, helped me for the better for sure
0: so before you finish up, I, I, I'm curious to know where do you see your future going? This has been a very uh, tumultuous couple of years.
2: It, yes, yes, it has. You see, I always, I always get stumped when when people ask me this question. Where you know, where do I see my life moving forward in the next few years? Look, I, I think, um, I think after being through this struggle and, and coming out on top, I think you know when I when I when I really think about what my passions are and. what what i what genuinely like lights a fire in my in my in my soul i guess um i'll definitely say i'd i'd love to help people with with this stuff you know what i mean with um like drug addictions rehab all that sort of stuff because yeah being being through the struggle and experiencing it firsthand it's like I, i feel like i have some insights that that could potentially help people that are going through that same struggle in the future you know what I mean? I think that would really, really get me out of bed in the morning.
0: Having that lived experience of mental health and yeah, wanting to support people in a similar position.
2: Because mm, mm. I know the effect that that drug addiction and abuse has had on me, and you know what recovery has done for me. And if I if I'm able to go through life and and help at least some people through that struggle, then then at least I know I've contributed in somewhat. You know what I mean.
0: Well, JJ, thank you for coming onto the show.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: No, that was a very difficult thing to articulate and, and we appreciate having
2: your story and sharing your vulnerabilities. Thank you. It was, it was uh, great to be on the first time telling this story. So hopefully, uh, yeah, there's some insights there that can help people. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thank you.